0: Good morning. We're in a series where we're looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, talking about tackling tough issues because that's what he does in this letter. And as we work our way through, we'll find that a lot of the things that he tackles are very relevant for our time today. Um, We talked about... Corinth being a dazzling modern Greek city. If you think about it, think of Chicago. It was a commercial link between east and west. It attracted status-conscious yuppies. If you remember what yuppie is, young, upwardly mobile (coughs) professionals, and they populated Corinth. It was a place where you could get status, and where your name could be something, um, in contrast to the poverty of the surrounding countryside, inhabitants of the city, inhabitants of the city were wealthy and they flaunted it. Uh, Corinth was characterized by the love of status and honor. that 's what drove Corinth. The well- to do donated banquets, they donated temples and monuments to enhance their public reputation. People's names were on everything because if your name was on something that was associated with status and honor and, and they cared very much for that. What Paul could see is that status consciousness was inching its way into the church and he saw this as a significant problem um, The problem in Paul's estimation was not that the church was in Corinth, but that too much of Corinth was in the church. Uh, They were suffering from eye disease. Um, It was saying, I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos and I belong to Cephas, and I belong to Jesus, they associated themselves with certain high-profile figures, depending on the way they saw it, because if they were affiliated with those high-profile figures, uh, that increased their status, gave them bragging rights. they could feel better if they were part of the church associated with Paul than those who were associated with Cephas or apollos and but they did that way bragging rights the way we might do with Vikings or the Packers or something like that still. Um for many, of the Christian community had become simply another arena to compete for status. And in Paul's time, he was very concerned about that. He said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And what Paul could see, when the church Adopt secular values. The cross of Christ is emptied of power, which is a striking statement that the things Jesus came to do that focused on the cross, those things possible to... the, The cross is powerful, would you agree? It can change lives. What can happen, though, The cross can be emptied of power. It can lose its ability to change and influence lives. Uh, Paul challenges the whole idea of status-driven Christianity because he cites that as being at the center of why the cross gets emptied of power. Let's see what he says. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The word of... Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that No human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brothers, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might rest, not rest, in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The early church in Corinth was populated not by who's who, but by who's that. Um... He said, consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standard, not many powerful or influential, not many were of noble birth, not many blue bloods in the church at Corinth. He says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak in the world to shame the strong, what is low and despised in the world, the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What he's saying, if they were to take stock of themselves and look around, um, they would readily recognize that, that they did not as a gathering, um, really constitute the cream of society. They, there weren't again, many blue bloods. There's not many who were in the upper echelons of culture and, uh, that shouldn't be surprising, Paul. He quotes from Jeremiah, um, talk about let not man who boast boast in this, and he's in. it's in your worship folder in Jeremiah 9. This is what Jeremiah said, God speaking through him. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. People in Corinth, they might have known this, but they found a way to cloak boasting in Christian garb. Again, there was... It was boasting, but it was Christian boasting. Um, and it had to do with oratory, it seems. Paul says in chapter 2, And when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. One way the church adopted secular values is that it demanded of those who were its spokespersons, the person who stood up front or stood up in the meeting. Again, in that church, there would have been house meetings and different individuals would be um, asked gifted call to bring messages. And in Corinth, if you're going to bring a message in one of the house churches in Corinth, it better be impressive. It better be well put together, not just the content, but the way it was proclaimed. It, it had to be in the sense of which they saw that oratory. It had to be impressive. Um, Oratory was valued in that culture. There were five things you had to do if you were going to be a good speaker in Corinth and in the Greco-Roman Empire. There, You had to focus on attention. You had to get people's attention, number one. Comprehension. You had to help them understand. Three, you had to get them to yield. You had to be able to pre- Present a compelling argument, get their attention, help them understand, and you had to get them to yield to your point. And then you had to get to them to, retention was important. You had to keep it in their head, and they had to take action. That seems reasonable. Um, Attention, comprehension, yielding, retention, and action. And if you were to focus on one of those five in the Greek Empire, the one you focused on was three, yielding. What you had to do, you used everything to get people to yield to your point. It was powerful. You wanted to influence them. You focused on being influential, changing people, forcing decisions, making people commit to things, and recommit their commitment, and recommit their commitment to their commitment. That's what you did if you were effective in in Corinth and one of the house churches there. Um, They used sophisticated speech to get the people to agree uh, in order to appeal to yuppies. Again, the rhetoric became valued, and Paul was criticized. To tell you the truth... He just wasn't that good a speaker in the parlance of their time. Now, what Paul Paul knew stuff. He knew the truth and could explain it if you gave him time. But apparently he wasn't all that interesting to listen to. There was one occasion where this guy named Eutychus was sitting at a window, and Paul was going on and on, and he was speaking, and... uh, Paul, brevity might not have been the thing that characterized Paul. He kept on talking and talking. You know. <laughs> Apparently, Eutychus started to snooze, you know, which is not a bad thing. I, I imagine one or two of you have done that at certain points. Your, point, your thing, though, is you are sitting in a seat. Eutychus' problem, he was sitting in the window. And it was the second or third floor of the building. So anyway, so just he started to do one of these things. You know, if you've done this, you know, just, you know. and, and But he flipped himself right out the window. And he fell in, and he was really in a, he was in a, so Paul had to put his message on hold, go down, raise him from the dead, and then go back up and continue his speaking. Um he was—he knew what he was talking about, but you had to want to understand him. If you wanted to be impressed by a speaker, you probably wouldn't have stayed in his church. If you wanted to know the truth, though, and you were willing to hang in there, and, and if you valued knowing the truth, he was the person that you wanted to listen to because he knew stuff. And over the years, you would come to understand. Um, Paul stressed, again, of, of those three, what do you imagine Paul stressed? There was, again, attention, comprehension, yielding, retention, and action. You know, the Greeks, they wanted to get people to yield what Paul wanted to do comprehension. He wanted you to understand. He would say things in such a way that you'd understand the point. You'd understand what somebody was saying. You would get it. Now, you might not like it, but you would understand it. And that's what Paul, that's what he valued. Paul trusted the power of the cross to convict the audience rather than the power of his eloquence. There's really one or two ways you can go. You can trust In the messenger or the message? What Paul did, he saw himself as a steward. What a steward does, he takes something he's been given and entrusts it as it was given. Paul was message-based. What he saw his responsibility as being, that there was a message that he was to get from God and he was to pass that message on, it wasn't his job to make it. Inspiring it was his job to make it relevant, and that it would be true, and that it was backed up with a commitment and with a life that's what he saw it was his responsibility to pass that on. He didn't see his job again as being an entertainer. He made sure that he each person must hear and understand, and is it again is it does that mean that you have to if you're Paul have boring sermons messages no? What it means, though, is when eloquence and human wisdom are relied on, when you rely on eloquence and human wisdom, the cross is emptied of power. And you might go away feeling inspired, feeling emotionally captivated. But you can be inspired and emotionally captivated and not changed by the message of the gospel. And that's what Paul centered on. Um, the power of the cross and the word of the cross are inseparably connected. I'm going to say that again. It's just, again, it sounds like a simple thing. The power of the cross and the word of the cross are inseparable. What that means, you can venerate the cross, But if we don't understand the message, the power of the cross flickers and fades. You can venerate the cross, but if you don't understand what the cross is saying, the cross is not powerful, which leads to a question. What is the message of the cross? I'll put it this way. Put it in a word. Can you think of it in one word? The message of the cross. One word. I think the simpler and the more clear we are about the message, the better off we are. It talks in the context about the word of the cross. Paul says in the beginning, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of power. And then verse 18 the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And again, he talks about the word of the cross. Um, it's possible to venerate the cross, again, but misunderstand its message. Uh, the presence or absence of power is evidenced, well, what? Not by spiritual disciplines or moral lifestyles. In Paul's time, the power of the cross is evidenced, I'm not sure what we're going to do with this, by the absence of divisions. What seems to happen when eloquence, rhetoric, oratory are what's focused on, a lot of divisions end up happening. I like Paul's church and I like Apollos' church and I like Cephas' church and I like this other church. And again, we, we go from place to place. And what I'm going to suggest here, this Paul is concerned, as I've said, about dividing into threes. And we are now on the millennia into a bunch of divisions. We're not going to turn the clock back. I guess what we can say, though, we can't turn the clock back and we can't be all unified. Denominations are here to stay. Here's the question, though. It is possible to know the word of the cross and to think about it, to make room in our minds for it. And if we're clear about the message of the cross, then the power of the cross can be active. And that's, yeah, that's intriguing. That's I think something that we're interested in. Um, to experience the power of the cross, one must understand the word of the cross. Um, do you know that word? There is a word. We've talked about it. talked about it about a month ago, month and a half ago. We're going to bring it up again. Um, but it says in 2 Corinthians 5, "All this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That word message could be translated word. It's the same word. So the word of the cross and the message of the cross, it's the same thing. And so what he talks about, the Message or the word of the cross, and there it is, reconciliation. If you want, the word of the cross, I'd say even more than salvation or forgiveness, it's reconciliation. What is the word of the cross? Reconciliation. And understanding that message causes the cross to become powerful, powerful in our lives. Uh, Reconciliation. Um, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. We've talked about what it means to reconcile. It's to change a relationship of enmity to one of peace and goodwill. That's what reconcile means. It means that the relationship has fallen into disrepair and the individual, one of the parties in the relationship, does something to fix the relationship. And this one, as Travis pointed out, This God's the one who does it. Again, when it's reconciliation applies to God, God takes the initiative to fix the relationship. And he does it all. And our job, as the recipients of this re- reconciliation, is to believe that God did his job. So your job is to believe that God did his job. He reconciled the relationship. He puts the cross in place because the cross is a sign of reconciliation. God reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. Your job is to believe this message, to believe this word. Um, It was rarely applied in a religious setting Because the concept of reconciliation was considered to be too personal for God. God would never think of fixing a relationship because God is not relational. And then Paul says, oh, yes, he is. Oh, yes, he is. He understands that there's a breach. And the reason God sends his son is to say to you and to the world a word reconciliation, the changing of a relationship from enmity to one of peace and goodwill. That is the message of the cross. That is the word of the cross. So you're going to come away knowing the word of the cross. The word of the cross is reconciliation. What is God saying from the cross? The word of the cross is reconciliation. That's the message of the cross. Reconciliation, God reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Um, Reconciliation, when applied to religion, was a first. Um, Prior to this, in religion, religion wasn't about God's initiative. It was about human initiative. And the way it was believed, and still is believed in many places today, we make the first step. And then God looks at the step we make and decides, okay, I think that's enough. And so back in those days, you had to kill something, slay something, memorize something, do something. And if you did enough stuff, God would look at it and go, okay, then you initiated and God would respond and say, okay, then, yeah, I think that's enough. I think you've memorized enough of the Bible. I think you've given enough money. I think you are praying enough. I think you have memorized enough scripture. Okay, I'll respond then and give you reconciliation. That's not the message of reconciliation. What reconciliation is, is God taking the initiative. He does it. Our job is to respond through belief. And as we respond and believe it does change us. God initiates them and then man responds. Paul is the sole New Testament writer to apply this term to the cross and he chose it because it clarifies the message. Uh, reconciliation again is something God does. Um, reconciliation is, is that objectionable? Reconciliation? Not really, is it? It's a nice term. It's a nice thing. Do you know the problem with reconciliation is? God reconciled the world to himself in Christ. Not counting men's sins against them. Do you know what the problem with reconciliation is? It applies to them. It applies to them. God reconciled the world To himself in Christ. God opens up the doors of eternal existence to the world. To them. To Muslims? Again, it doesn't mean because, just I want to be very clear here. If God extends the offer of reconciliation to the world... Does the world automatically become reconciled to God? No, the deal with reconciliation is reconciliation has no power if you don't make room for it in your mind and believe it. I can, if we have a relationship that's out of kilter, I can choose, I can write you a letter in which I reconcile with you, but your thinking about me doesn't change if you don't read the letter. Right? And if you don't make room for it, and if you don't continue to make room for it, so God could extend reconciliation to the world, but is everybody in the world saved? No, they aren't. What would happen if they believed? What happens if the word of the cross is proclaimed and they hear it? You know what ends up happening? It becomes the power of the cross. It becomes the power of the cross, the power that leads to salvation, to Jews and Greeks. Is God extending the offer of reconciliation to Muslims? Absolutely. Who are your thems? Who are your thems? We all have thems. And the problem with reconciliation is and I'm not just pointing at you. We don't like it when we, it goes to them, do we? To them. We like it when it goes to us. To us. Of course God will reconcile to us. And them? I think that's one of the problems with the, the word of the cross. Not just that it's reconciliation, but that it's, it's, it's a reconciliation to them. I think that's what makes it objectionable. Um, the cross is a sign. There was a, there was a time when, you know, the cross, again, it's a sign. It says something. Uh, the Pharisees in Matthew 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him, it says in Matthew 16. And, and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Remember the remember the story of Jonah? Nineveh was in the kingdom of Assyria. And in the 8th century, Syria was gaining in power. It was beginning to move towards Israel. The Assyrians were not nice people. What they did when they conquered a land, they absolutely decimated it. Flayed people alive. It, It was, they were terrible. They scared you spitless. And then God commissioned Jonah and God said to him, I want you to go and tell the Assyrians in Nineveh that I want to be merciful to them. So Jonah doesn't like that idea very well. Because if you were an Israelite, Assyrians were them with a capital T. They were really thems. And uh, so anyways, uh, Jonah goes and he doesn't want to go. So he moves in the other direction. You know the story, God swallows him with a fish. He's inside a fish and and he gets spit out on the shore of Nineveh. And that's the. You know what the sign of Jonah is? What's the sign of Jonah? God bring good news to them. That's the sign of Jonah. It was that God wanted to include the Assyrians. Now again, the Assyrians repented, but we don't know how long. And and it ended up that God ended up judging them. Um, The the cross is a is a is a sign to them. What do we do with this? We live in a challenging time. The number of divisions indicates that the cross is not very powerful in our time. Again, we're not going to turn back the clock. I would say a couple of things. Go to a place where the message is central. Again, go to places where there's interesting speaking. But make sure what I would say is go to a place where the message is central, that it's consistent. What I would say, when well, you hear about reconciliation, uh, because that is the message of the cross. Um, there's a couple of things in the Bible. There's a couple of things, and you say, well, what's my... What it... And Ezekiel. He's talking to Ezekiel, and here's what the, um, God says to him. As for you, son of man... Your countrymen are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. And Israel is says, my people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to listen to your words, but they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. Um, I don't think you're here, frankly, because there's a lot of bells and whistles at this church. We do worship singing, and it's good. There are things that happen here, but not that many. If you are here, I think you're here because of the message. And for friend, you know, there's other things. And I guess what I would what I would say about that, um, good for you. Good for you. Um, be message based rather than messenger based. People up front, J.C., Mark, myself, individuals who get up here will tell some stories. You know what I mean? And there's different things. JC will get up here and Mark will get up here and I'll get up here and we'll make mistakes and we'll be funny sometime. If you put your finger on the pulse of where we are, Dolph, well, you'll find we really care about the message. And we will make sure that, that what the, what we feel the Bible focuses on is what we 'll focus on, remember when back when hope began here 's really what we did. I was in a place where I came from another church situation that was very painful, and I wanted to get out of town i, I just i 'm out of here anyways, what ended up happening um, we ended up getting together, and it was decided that you know what there's the thing the Bible seems to focus on is not focused on in many churches again. Which, But what we ended up saying, what would happen if we focused on grace as much as the Bible does? What would happen if we let the good news be the good news every week? What would happen? What happens? You know what we, you know what you figure? You don't grow a big church. You can't beat people up for money because, frankly, in the New Covenant, the Bible doesn't. We can't talk about forcing people to tithe. Again, give. Give, yeah, because if you, if you don't give, things don't happen. And, but we'll say this service is a gift because we're not going to say give 10% and God will give you all kinds of stuff back because the demand to tithe died when Jesus did. And we're not going to put a burden to make something happen that might even be useful. We're not going to do it. And that's, there's something that, so, you know what? So there will be some good things about this church and some things that might never have a bunch of programs. But you know what? What you'll have here, as best, as much as is possible, you'll have people up front who care about the truth and who want to make the message understandable and clear. Again, we do it better sometimes than others, but that's the deal. Um, But that's one thing that you might do. And if you're coming here, and so that's what Ezekiel said in his time, people came because they want to be entertained. And if you're here, you don't want to be entertained because you could go to other churches that are much more entertaining than this one is. I, I, I guess what I'm saying that, I say that to your credit. It's kind of self serving, but I, if you're here, you're here because you care about the message. Good for you. Good for you. Because the word of the cross is the power of the cross. And if you make room for it, it will change you. It says one other thing in Jeremiah. He's, he's talking, I am against the prophets who steal from one another words supposedly from me. Yes, declares the Lord, I am against the prophets who wag their own tongues and yet declare, the Lord declares, Indeed, I am against those who prophesy false dreams. They tell them and lead my people astray with the reckless lies, yet I did not send them or appoint them. They do not benefit these people in the least. What what God puts his crosshairs on is people who stand up front and say the Lord says, but God didn't say it. And it indicates that they just don't help those people in the least. So you'll do your part, and if you continue to stay, come because of the message. You know, enjoy other things. And what I'll let you know is those who stand up here, whoever it is, is going to care about the message. And we're not just going to say something that other people are saying. Because that's not, you're not going to say, the Lord says, if you didn't say, to the best of our ability, If we'll come up and we'll say things that we really believe he's saying in his word. And there is a word that he is saying, a word that the cross says. You know that word this morning. You know that word? What is that word? God was reconciling the world to himself at the cross. Not counting your sins against you. That's what reconciliation is. God is not angry at you. He is not mad at you. He wants you to understand that. And as you make room for that, you start to experience the power of God in your heart. Come on, we're going to sing a closing song. And dear Father, we just are marveled at what your work does. And to look down from the cross and say that we, the act of reconciliation is done is an amazing miracle, not just for us, but for them. Help us to remember and carry that this week. As we look at one another and as we look at folks who don't know the message. And that we remember this is for them too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.